knowing what you believe and why you believe it lies at the very heart of Christian experience, worship, and everyday living. The Bible's not about you. You're not David. Trouble in life is not Goliath. Jesus is going to be David in the shadow. Goliath is going to be sin and death. Who's that make you? Uh, and it doesn't make you the Israelites in the corner going, he's going to kill all of us. That's exactly who you are. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I, with body and soul, life and in death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Gospel is that God the Son freely agreed to die our death for us, to suffer our deserved condemnation and doom in our place. And he didn't just agree from eternity to do it, he actually did it. It is fatal, fatal for us to think that we can ever move on from the gospel. The great problem in the evangelical church today where the scripture is concerned is not the inerrancy of the Bible. The great problem in the evangelical church today is the sufficiency of scripture. We don't think it's sufficient to do what we have to do. So we have to wake up to what's happening and recognize that the problem really is our lack of theology. Hi, and welcome to Theology Gals. I'm Colleen Sharp, and Angela Whitehorn is my co-host. And Angela, we had something kind of fun in the Theology Gals admin chat today. We sometimes feel a little bit in the group like we're, we're su- superheroes. I mean, we probably really aren't, but I found, <laughs> I found yeah. this, this. It was a cartoon picture. Like, I was looking for something with a bunch of female superheroes. It was fun hard to find something that was modest enough, but there was one with some cartoon ones. Okay. And so I put it in the admin chat and I said, this is us right here. It had like, I don't even know all the characters on there, but I, I claimed wonder woman because I loved wonder woman when I was young. And then Rebecca Womble, she is Batgirl, and Jennifer is Supergirl. I don't think I can even remember all the characters. Do you even know the name? of yours? Um, I don't. It's it's kind of a lady joker. And <laughs> <laughs> That's what we call her. Um, <laughs> I think this got picked for me because I'm a joker. <laughs> and the funny thing is, Colleen, you posted the, the picture of the cartoons in the group and asked the ladies to guess who is who. And one of the earliest comments is, that Joker one is Angela because she has a bat and beats people down with bad theology. <laughs> I never I really know you had that reputation. I did not. Um, I guess I'll take it. <laughs> yeah. I just picked her because she had blonde hair and said, why? <laughs> do, do you uh, remember like the old Wonder Woman that was the real... Uh, uh, oh, yeah. Linda Carter. Yeah, Linda Carter. Yeah. Yes, oh, I loved that so you much. You definitely be her, Colleen. And, okay, so this will age me, but I had Wonder Woman under ruse. Oh, my goodness. And I don't know if you did, but I did. And I was so <laughs> excited. <laughs> um, you know, the best, uh, the best part of the Theology Gals guessing is um, we do have one admin uh, with us, Loretta. Um, she is our only lady of color on the admin team. And there was only <laughs> only one choice that fit her in the superhero. No one guessed no her. One guessed her. <laughs> Come on, guys, hiding in plain sight. You know, I think uh, maybe part of it is uh, some of us were picking based on whether or not they actually look like us. And I'm not sure if everyone knows what we look like, but Jana picked, was it, is it poison ivy that has the red I hair? So, she yeah. said, my hair looks like that when I let it grow out. So there you go. Right. And I think it was a combination. I think we kind of picked a combination of who, which superhero we really want to be, which superhero was left on the list <laughs> because if <laughs> someone else already claimed yours, uh, maybe a little bit looks like, I mean, I, don't look anything like Wonder Woman. <laughs> so, but it was it was at least something fun, and and we needed something fun. 
this is what we do all day in the Theology Gals admin <laughs> It can get dark sometimes. So. Right. And now Rebecca has been creating, I guess, with some sort of app. She like found people like, you know, you can do those bitmoji things. And so she was like making uh, one with with your hair and eyes and and making it like a, and there's a TG on the front. So we oh. can be actual Theology Gals superheroes. Awesome. Let me say one other thing. Someone asked in the group, so who exactly is a theology gal? Is it just Colleen and Angela or is it anyone in the group? And I think you and I both said it's anyone in the group and anyone who listens to the podcast. If you're a female, you're a theology gal. In fact, a friend of mine is traveling right now and he uh, had a meeting this afternoon with him and some other people and he's staying with at somebody's house and he says there's a theology gal here in the house i'm staying at because uh where he's staying the daughter is in our group so that was kind of fun uh, so today we're going to be talking to chris kahi from the glory cloud podcast and the first time my husband when i was telling my husband about the glory cloud podcast he's like what kind of podcast is that <laughs> like he was thinking, <laughs> like not like a charismatic podcast or something like gold dust is there feathers or right um but chris's podcast is excellent i there's some podcasts like i can listen to while i clean and stuff like that a lot of the times when i listen to chris i i gotta like sit there and listen because i gotta Mm -hmm. take notes and and stop it and look up a passage of scripture and i mean that his podcast really gets me thinking. So I, I appreciate it very much. And a lot of the episodes are having to do with things that Meredith Klein has written, but not all. There's some other ones on there. And I, you know, go look at all of his episodes. They have almost a hundred. And Chris contributed to a book with a few other people about reformed identity. And so after we talked to Chris a little bit about Meredith Klein, and a little theology talk in there. We're going to talk about Reformed identity and specifically uh, who is Reformed or do we know who is Reformed anymore and should it have an objective definition? Right. One of the things that we love on Theology Gals is to point our listeners to deeper study, um, more in-depth study. And so that's that's one thing that I will point out about Glory Cloud podcast and, and some of the things that we're going to talk about with Chris um, coming up is that it's hefty theology and it's um, meaty and weighty. And I'm like you, Colleen, a lot of times if I'm listening to Chris's podcast, I really can't be multitasking. I have to pay attention, back it up, think it through. And so I'll I'll just encourage our listeners, if some of what we're about to talk about is a little out of reach, hang with us because we're going to be getting to a topic that's really probably of great interest to a lot of our um, listeners and our friends in our group, just about what does reformed mean? How do we decide who can be called reformed? Should we have this discussion? And I I think one of the most encouraging things to me coming out of um, talking with Chris about this is that there can be an underlying charity given to those that we have unity on, uh, a unity with on this topic, and even those that we don't necessarily. And, And so the conversation is maybe a little bit of a difficult one because it, it feels like there's a lot of people with something at stake and, and there is certainly a lot of disagreement to go around and a lot of high feelings about this topic, but we can still have the conversation. We can do it with charity and kindness and we can use that to kind of move us forward in this conversation and and see where we need to go next. And so we talked with Chris about some of that sort of charity in how we converse towards the end. And it just really reminded me of our group, uh, of Theology Gals group, um, where it's so, so important to us, um, kindness, charity, um, having conversations that will be fruitful, not throwing barbs just for the sake of, of fun and having it feel good. And I think that's something that's really important to us in our group and on this podcast. So I hope everybody enjoys it. And I'm glad that you brought up the charity thing because we've talked about on this podcast before and it's been something 
really at the forefront of my mind recently, the importance of having charitable, fruitful discussions. And there's so many topics out there where there's a line drawn in the sand. Which side are you on? And uh, and I think sometimes the way it's done, it shuts down conversations. So we are glad this is being talked about. We agree with Chris that, that it is a conversation that needs to be had. I wanted to mention that Chris has also written a book. I haven't read it yet, but I can't wait to read it. And it is called The Tale of Two Adams. And I just wanted to read just one thing from the description. It says, in clear language that is easy to understand, Kahi explains crucial biblical doctrines such as God's covenants, justification, sanctification, grace, and works, all on a journey from Genesis to Revelation. I mean, that description it made me really excited to read the book. So we're going to link that in the episode notes too. I also wanted to mention before we go to the interview, because we won't have a yeah about that because we've it's a long interview. And that is, we have some really great episodes coming up. We have been getting, I think, since we started this podcast request to do an episode on baptism. Well, that is finally coming up in the next couple of weeks. And then mysticism. And we have a very special guest that's going to be joining us to talk about mysticism, but I'm going to keep it a secret for now. So we'll go ahead and go to the interview. Well, we are here with Chris Kahi from the Glory Cloud podcast. If you have not listened to it, I'm going to link it in the episode notes. And before we get started, just can you share a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, I... I got interested in theology um, probably during high school and ended up going to Westminster Seminary, California, which many of your listeners will probably know about. And um, based on studying under uh, Meredith Klein there, decided to go and do a PhD uh, about the Mosaic Covenant. So since... Since all of that, uh, some friends and I decided that we wanted to get the word out to more people about Meredith Klein. So we've started the Glory Cloud podcast, and we are closing in on our 100th episode. That's amazing. Congratulations. Well, thank you. I think I saw uh, something that said that the average podcaster gives up at eight episodes or something like that. Oh, my goodness. 100 (laughs) is pretty amazing. So... um, you kind of mentioned your podcast a little bit that is about Meredith Klein, but can you talk a little bit about the format and exactly the sorts of things that you talk about on the podcast? Sure. So the Glory Cloud podcast is about the biblical and the theological insights of Meredith Klein, who uh, went to be with the Lord in 2007. We've been discussing our way through Klein's books, and we're currently in his greatest work, Kingdom Prologue. Uh, We've done some interviews of others, either because of their relationship to Meredith Klein or because they've written things based on what they learned from him. Let's see, the podcast started out with Lee Irons and me, but Lee has had to step away. So now I'm joined by an OPC pastor named Todd Bordeaux out of uh, Texas. And Lee and Todd and I were all students of clients at Westminster Seminary, California. So that helps as we have our weekly discussions. So can you tell um, our listeners a little bit about Meredith Klein and why, um, I know you said you were all just, uh, that you were all students of his. Is that why you've chosen to focus on his teachings on the podcast? Are there other reasons? I think that's what drew us together in terms of being excited about doing a podcast about it. Obviously, because of the, the pronouns I've already uh, stolen some of my own thunder, but I was going to say that even though the name Meredith suggests otherwise to some people, uh, Meredith Klein was a man and he taught Old Testament biblical theology at Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia. He taught for a while at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary and also Westminster Seminary, California. And he worked in a field of study called biblical theology, which is very complementary to, but distinct from systematic theology. So systematic theology is organized according to the principle of logic, and it answers the question, what does the Bible teach about topic X? Uh, Biblical theology is organized according to the principle of history, so it traces how God's self-revelation unfolds and grows and develops through time from creation to new creation 
um, biblical theology is also interested in the relationship of eschatology to each point along the line of history. Um, so, I mean, I don't know how much this is true for both um, Lee and Todd. I, th- I think less so for Todd because um, he was a, well, actually he grew up um, in a Jewish family. But anyway, um, I grew up in church learning all the Bible stories, but they were all completely disconnected from each other. They didn't have anything to do with each other. And in Klein's classes, the Bible for the first time began to come together as one whole piece of cloth. And that was really exciting to see how it, it was all related. Um, he also pointed out how it was all revealing Christ. And so, um, especially since I had um, become very excited about um, the doctrine of, of justification and the distinction between law and gospel by listening to like the White Horse Inn and, and R.C. Sproul, um, when Klein would point out the Christ-centered nature of all of these Bible stories, that was very exciting. Uh, Klein himself had a, I would describe it as a razor-sharp distinction between the law and the gospel. Um, probably the most helpful definition of grace I think I've ever heard. And um, I mean, of course I'm biased, but I'd say also the most helpful covenant theologian that I've ever read. So those are some of the reasons that we've wanted to um, introduce more people to to what he did and said. I really agree with you that, uh, that Klein's definition of grace is, is very helpful. It's got a little bit more precision to it. That's really helpful when you're working out the difference between what's going on in the covenant of works, what's going on in the covenant of grace. I, I kind of want to give our listeners a taste of sort of the topics that you guys talk about. So I've got a question for you that I've been kicking around for the last week or so with a mutual friend of all of ours, which, you know, for our listeners, I know we've mentioned before we, the theology gals, we have a lot of fun on Twitter, um, with friends and different folks who podcast. So I've been having this conversation with our friend Tony of the new Geneva Twitter account, which here's some news that is soon to be the new Geneva blog, where I will also be doing a little bit of writing. And actually, we're going to be writing about questions kind of like this. So here it is. This is what we've been talking about. Is the covenant of works rooted in the pactum salutis? So I think we automatically think of the covenant of grace being rooted there. But what about the covenant of works? And I'm wondering, is there a way in which it had to exist as a backdrop for the covenant of grace to make sense? And kind of flowing out of that, we haven't talked about republication on our um, podcast, so that's probably too complicated to explain the whole thing. But I'm wondering, in what way does Christ keep the covenant of works for us? Is it in the actual covenant of works itself, or is it as a republication of the covenant of works in the covenant of grace? So hopefully all of those questions made sense and kind of flow together. What, do you, what are your thoughts about that? There, there were a lot of questions in there. <laughs> I was uh, just going to say. <laughs> I think the first question was, is the covenant of works... And I take it by that you mean uh, between Adam and God rooted in the eternal uh, covenant of redemption. Yes, that's the question. And that's a great question that I really haven't given enough thought to to really be confident about giving you an answer right now. I've mostly discussed the covenant of re- redemption in terms of its relationship to the covenant of grace. So I'll I'll just tell you, I feel like I'm in good company then because that... It was pretty much my initial <laughs> thoughts about this question as well as we started talking about it. I mean, my concern about being too dogmatic about that is that it could very quickly get into super lapsarianism where, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> my <laughs> my gut is just telling me to be careful about that one right now. Um, we stumped you. Which is it's easy to do. Um, but... Remind me of some of the other questions. Yeah, can we talk about in what way does Christ keep the covenant of works for us? So is that the actual covenant of works itself, or is that as a republication of the covenant of works 
in the covenant of grace? I want to say both. Um, And I think that something like Romans 5 is talking about how he fulfilled the covenant of redemption or the pactum salutis, however you want to refer to it, because there Paul talks about the one act of righteousness. And so I think the son is uh, becoming incarnate in order to do this whole thing that ends up being called the one act of righteousness, namely, I mean, being perfectly obedient and then dying on the cross and rising again, um, really focusing on his, his death on the cross, but that would be his, um, his keeping of the eternal uh, covenant of redemption. But there is what Klein calls, um, typological legibility, which is Klein speak for uh, Jesus lived in a particular embodied history that looked the way that it did so that we could look at it and go, oh, he's keeping a covenant of works. Mm. I mean, it wouldn't have made as much sense for us to be talking about uh, the covenant of redemption as a covenant of works if Jesus were born into the Abrahamic covenant where God was simply giving graciously and not asking anything of Abraham as a condition for giving him whatever he gave him. The, the Todd and I have actually been talking about the, the Abrahamic covenant in some of our recent episodes in the glory cloud podcast. And so it's fresh in my mind, just how gracious that covenant was, and it wouldn't make much sense for Jesus to come into a situation like that. And then for us to talk about him keeping a covenant of works. But in contrast to that, Jesus was born into a covenantal situation that said, here are not only the 10 commandments, but other laws that I've given you in the, uh, the first five books of the old Testament. And if you keep these, you will have long life in the land. You'll have lots of children and they'll all be healthy and you'll all have plenty of crops and animals and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But if you break these laws that I'm giving you, then I'm going to send your enemies in to take you captive. And I mean, all kinds of curses that are essentially the opposite of all those blessings that I just listed. So Jesus is living in a situation like that where it makes his obedience make much more sense out of talking about him keeping a covenant of works. If you want to hear more about this, listen to Glory Cloud podcast. Um, for the, yeah, <laughs> I mean, Sorry. this literally could be no. This was it was a great answer, and it it could really be a whole entire podcast just talking about this. But for any of our listeners who's maybe we have all kinds of different listeners, but anyone who's kind of getting new into reading a lot of theology, and if they wanted to pick up something from Klein, what would be your recommendation? A great place to start. If you want to read Klein himself, you would probably want to start with either the structure of biblical authority or it's out of print now, but uh, by oath consigned. Um, Both of those would be good points of entrance into what he's doing. And actually, maybe even before that, and even easier to read than either of those would be a short article that he wrote called Covenant Theology Under Attack. And that's a really bite-sized version of really his entire theological program. That that article I have read, and it is fantastic. And um, just as you said, it's um, bite-sized, easy to digest, and I highly recommend it to our listeners. Um, It's a polemic against some uh, theology that we have discussed on Theology Gals um, related to um, sort of the backdrop of federal vision and that kind of stuff. And it's a really great article. And I'll recommend, we, I know we've got a lot, a lot of listeners who are studying baptism and Bioth Consigned is a great book. Mm. Um, if you're studying baptism, I I don't even know where we got it. Somebody, I believe, gave it to us. <laughs> you're probably like... 23 or 24 years ago. And um, yeah, great, great. It was one of the ones that we read when we were studying infant baptism, my husband and I. So moving along to the other subject that we're going to talk about, and um, I should probably tell you, because I did not tell you this off 
air, we're going to have R. Scott Clark on in oh, a couple of weeks. And we're talking to him about something else, but I said, can we spend 10 minutes on this? <laughs> so we kind of hear, hear both sides. But we're going to be talking to you about this new book that's that's come out. It's a bit pricey, so it might be good for those who can't afford it to know what you guys are talking about. But why don't you just give some background to the book and, and why you guys published it and what it's about? So... Um... It is pricey. Um, for that reason, I would recommend if your listeners are at all interested in reading it to use interlibrary loan because it's the kind of book that a lot of academic libraries will just automatically purchase because it's from a publisher that they, they just buy everything that the publisher produces. But anyway, my PhD supervisor and I um, started working on an idea um, based on conversations that we had had over time. And um, also, as we were dialoguing with Daryl Hart on his blog, uh, Old Life, and out of that came our contribution, uh, which is uh, history, identity, politics, and the recovery of the Reformed Confession. So we sent that off to Daryl, and uh, he wrote a response. And then Matthew Bingham, uh, who's a Baptist, wrote um, a contribution and finally, all of this got forwarded to our Scott Clark. And so he wrote a chapter as a, as a contribution. So that's kind of how the, the book took form. We were actually really hoping to get it published in something like the Westminster Theological Journal or someplace that would land in front of uh, lots of reformed pastors and elders and things like that. But um, we decided to publish it as a book instead. So... Uh, as the, as the name suggests, on being reformed, it is a debate over what does it mean to be reformed and who gets to decide. I mean, I guess those two questions really get at the essence of what we're doing in the book. So specifically, who, who gets to call themselves reformed and, and what it means to say, I'm reformed? Yes. And since... Since Crawford and I really started our um, chapter in response to our Scott Clark's book, Recovering the Reformed Confession, I suppose some closely related questions would be, what is the Reformed Confession? And does anyone still subscribe the Reformed Confession? So, so coming out of those questions, you know, I've read the book and I highly recommend it's... um, a really fun read. So I do um, second what you said about checking out that interlibrary loan for our listeners. And we have a lot of listeners actually who are not Presbyterian, who I think would be very interested in this book. So tell us now, what position do you take in the book as an answer to those questions? Well, so to answer that question, I would like to distinguish myself from Crawford Gribben and Matthew Bingham. Uh, They are Baptists, and I am not. But like I said, Crawford and I decided to collaborate on this together. And so while he and Matthew Bingham are wanting to be included among the Reformed as Baptists, I suppose I would describe my position as an appeal for honesty. Mm -hmm. Um, As I began to work on my PhD, it became clear that there were at least two there could be more, but I was very aware of at least two competing visions of what it means to be reformed. And uh, for the the purpose of an audience like this, uh, we could maybe call one the Whitehorse Inn version, which obviously includes folks from Westminster Seminary, California. The other might be sort of the Neo-Puritan version. Um, I don't know if there's necessarily a show like the White Horse Inn that can be associated with that. But in any case, both sides claim that they faithfully represent the Reformed tradition, but their visions of that tradition are so different that that they often say, um, to be diplomatic about it, less than kind things about each other. And uh, if they ever speak at a conference that's put on by the other side, everyone is very careful that the topic is such that no one feels like their vision of the reformed tradition is violated. So, I mean, just as an example, Michael Horton might be invited to speak at a conference that's hosted by those whom I'm identifying as Neo-Puritans. 
But in that case, he would speak about something like the authority of Scripture, something that both sides would uh, be much more likely to agree on. Can you give us an example just for our listeners so they're following what you're talking about? Who would be a neo-Puritan? Is that like a John Piper or um, is there someone that our listeners would recognize? Piper would probably want to identify with those that I'm uh, thinking of as, as neo-Puritans, but I mean, um, probably even the entire um, uh, banner of truth publishing uh, project would be considered neo-Puritan. There's even um, Puritan reformed seminary. And so the, the folks that teach there would definitely fall into this category Mark Jones would probably be one of the uh, Neo-Puritans, so. Okay. So what would distinguish a Neo-Puritan from Westminster, California? That's a great question. Um, and actually, let, let, let me say a little bit more about, um, about why I took the position that I, that I took, and I think the answer to that will, will come out. Um, as I worked on my PhD, um, I became convinced that neither side is completely honest. Um, so n- neither the White Horse in-group nor these Neo-Puritans. The Reformed tradition seems to me much more complicated, messier, and inclusive of ideas that both sides actually find repugnant. Um, so much more that way than either side wants to admit. And so while I think that the White Horse Inn version of the Reformed tradition is much more faithful to the Bible, I think that the Neo-Puritans have some true things to say about historical characters and events from the Reformed tradition that would make White Horse Inn version folks uncomfortable. Um, At the same time, I've come to realize that um, these Neo-Puritan types also largely write hagiography, which... um, basically just means holy writing. They, they write in praise of their theological heroes without doing justice to the warts and the flaws and the sins of those heroes. So you end up reading something by one of these Neo-Puritans and you come away thinking that that particular theologian that you just read about was so darn close to the second coming. Does that make sense? Yes. I'm, I'm wondering if there's um, major differences between these two groups on things like law gospel distinction? I, I think that that is an issue. And uh, honestly, that was one of the things that, that bothered me as I did my PhD was finding out that, um, I mean, there's a, a serious vein of this group called Puritans um, that would not have shared a razor sharp distinction between the law and the gospel with us. Um, mm. But to go back to what I said about it being uh, complicated and messy, I'm not convinced that we can talk about the Puritans, just like we can't really talk about the evangelicals. I mean, there are so many different individuals even within the, the category name that um, we have to just take them each on their, their own merits. And uh, so, I mean, there, there were some Puritans that, did have a very sharp law gospel distinction. Um, so that's what makes it hard to say that um, either position is what the Puritans believed. We have to just be, uh, I guess, more nuanced than that. But um, all of that to say, I guess what I'm wanting to do in the part that I played in this is to put all of the historical and theological cards on the table and acknowledge them. And if some of those cards make us uncomfortable, then my position is we need to actually and truly deal with that rather than to retreat into a position of, I have the reformed tradition and you don't. And I see, I see both sides doing that. So um, you're, you're talking right now about dealing with the history um, why don't you talk a little bit about what the history is? What What is some of the history that you talk about in the book? Sure. So I'm, I'm actually very sympathetic to most of what Daryl Hart and R. Scott Clark say in terms of 
the Reformed Confession and the Reformed label. Uh, however, what I'm wanting to deal with in this book is Clark's claim from his book, Recovering the Reformed Confession, that it is the what he calls the six forms of unity, the Belgic Confession, the Heidelberg Catechism, the Canons of Dort, the Westminster Confession, and its larger and shorter catechisms. As those documents were written in the 16th and 17th centuries that define the Reformed tradition, I, I think that that's where the the problem starts because, of course, some of those confessional documents say things that nobody believes anymore. And so if those documents from the 16th and 17th century define what it means to be Reformed, and if we reject certain things from those documents, can we really be Reformed? Um, so I don't know if I've answered your question very well, but I mean, I think the history of the Reformed label is essentially the debates and the church councils that happened in order to produce the confessional documents that we still use today, albeit um, in some modified forms. So one of the things that comes up in our group a lot, and uh, we have a a Theology Gals Facebook group, and there's over 4,000 women in there. And there's, I would say, I'm not even sure percentages anymore, but there's Reformed and Presbyterian in there. There is what people would call Reformed Baptist. There are various Calvinistic Baptists, so people that would be closer to John Piper and then people that would be closer to John MacArthur. We've kind of seen, when we're talking about that, three categories. There's the there's the confessional Reformed and Presbyterian and then there's the Calvinistic Baptists, and then the um, Reformed Baptists. But where do you see, as far as that label, do you think it should apply more broadly to those groups? <laughs> You're asking me a difficult question because I really don't have personal sympathy for the Baptist position. So, I mean, I, I only have sympathy in this sense that if we can't be reformed in the same way that the folks in the 16th and 17th century that actually wrote the original documents conceived of what it meant to be reformed, then maybe we need to be more generous in terms of who else we let use that label reformed. Um, Otherwise it seems to me that what's good for the goose is good for the gander. And um, then it's just, total war in terms of owning the reformed tradition and pushing out those who you are convinced are, you know, not heir to it. Okay. So you and I both have been, I don't know how long you've been reformed, but at least you and I have both been reformed at least since the Mm nineties. And so you and I have witnessed what has happened in the last, I guess, 20 years, especially started with the white horse in some would say, and some things that went on and then into the 2000s with Young, Restless, and Reformed. And at least from my perspective, and I think others would agree, that when I became Reformed in the early to mid-90s, it kind of meant something specific. People used it in a specific way. And there was Reformed Baptists too. We had Reformed Baptist friends. We didn't have any problem calling them Reformed Baptists. But now it seems to be used more broadly. And do you think it should be used? And if so, how? <laughs> I know yeah, I'm putting you on the here, spot. I, I think I am going to be more sympathetic to what um, Daryl Hart and R. Scott Clark say. But, I mean, again, as we're talking about in this book, even these six forms of unity compared with uh, the 1689 London Baptist Confession really, I think, show that the people that are calling themselves young, restless, and reformed are not all that reformed. I mean, there's enough agreement between, okay, the, the, the Presbyterian documents and the Baptist 1689 confession that the young, restless, and reformed would not be comfortable with at all that I think shows that their interests and their commitments are actually not, uh, not with the reformed tradition. I, I definitely relate to what you're saying. 
my family has reformed over the last couple of years, and we have history in churches that are sort of that new Calvinist, uh, John Piper and Matt Chandler kind of feel. And, you know, coming all the way to becoming Presbyterian and confessional, it has really meant a lot to me to have a confession where we can build unity on believing the same things on um, what I would say is kind of a robust list of things as I compare to where I've been in the past, where the list of things is super extremely short. So then I think about um, people like John Piper who explicitly deny a covenant of works. They're charismatic. Um, The doctrine of justification by faith alone has problems Um, And so it becomes very, very hard for me now where I am to look back at that and consider that to be in the same pool as where I am, because to me, there is a huge, stark difference and contrast. So am I right? Or were you just were you just saying that sort of that that kind of flavor, you would be more sympathetic, sympathetic to um, the arguments of Hart and Clark? Right. I, I think you and I are agreeing. Um, I, I think when you look at the Presbyterian side of this and the 1689 Reformed Baptist side of this, it really makes someone like John Piper look like he is interested in this more as a fad because mm-hmm. he doesn't have a confession. Right. And, and for Sorry, I'll throw in for our listeners who aren't in the Facebook group. We do refer to confessional 1689 um, Baptists as Reformed Baptists in our group. So, mm. you know, that's that's terminology we're comfortable with. And mm-hmm. so where I start to get uncomfortable is broadening it more and more and more beyond that to where anyone who just found Calvinism yesterday is Reformed. Right. And I, I admit that what I'm up to in my chapter does open the door wide to that kind of broadening. And I will also admit that my own work makes me uncomfortable, but I'm wanting, <laughs> I'm wanting to provoke a discussion. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. I think this is an argument that needs to be had rather than to, like I said, just retreat into our corner and plant our flag and say, we have the reformed tradition. I, I don't think that's helping anybody. So are you, are you just to be clear for our listeners, in case some of these things are not clear. Are we talking more about the difference between what we would call a Reformed Baptist that holds to the 1689 and a Reformed and Presbyterian? Whether Because there are people that even say Baptists of any sort whatsoever should not bear that label, correct? Right. And I, I mean... That's really the argument that Daryl Hart and R. Scott Clark are making because, um, you know, they're saying, look, if, if these Baptists were to, e- even a strict 1689 London Baptist Confession person were to somehow be able to travel back in time to the Synod of Dort or to the Westminster Assembly, um, they would not receive a warm welcome because baptizing our infants is so much a part of what it means to be reformed that there just wouldn't be that theological fellowship there. Um, and, and I, I mean, I do agree with them. The problem is based on my, on my own project that I did for my PhD, I'm pretty sure that if any of us, especially Daryl Hart and R. Scott Clark, uh, well, especially Daryl Hart were to travel back in time to either one of those, um, any of us would probably be called antinomian and Anabaptist because of how we understand the relationship between the church and the state. And I don't think most of us today understand how big of a deal it would have been to, to be labeled an antinomian back then. I mean, it was more than just a theological error. It was something that really caused panic in um, Protestants at that time. And I I say it that way because it wasn't just Calvinists. Lutherans were also terrified of antinomians because 
everybody thought that they would, that antinomians would be the undoing of society, that it would be, um, I guess to make the analogy to our own time, it would be sort of like cultural Marxism um, on steroids. And they were really afraid that antinomians would wreck the whole social and moral order. So I, I know that you're wanting there to be a discussion and I, I do also, I think right now there's a lot of confusion. Um, mm-hmm. At least we see it. We, for the purpose of clarity and peace in our group, we set out and said in our group, this is what the terms mean because when everyone's defining something different, it just causes great confusion and it's a mess. So sure. we kind of set that out in our group, but I, it's hard for me to see. Yes, we need to talk about it. And I guess we know that labels and um, definitions can change through history and things like that can happen. So I suppose there can be a really clear objective definition in 50 years. But what exactly would you like to see be the fruit of these discussions? I mean, other than I know you said being honest about our history and and whatnot. But as far as I don't know if you if you would like to see an end or an agreement that people would come to. Personally, I think the best way forward from the situation that we're in is to write a new confession. Um, and call it something completely new so that it's distinguished from what has gone before. Um, Crawford Gribben and I point out in our chapter that part of the confusion is that when the American Presbyterians got together in 1788 and revised the part of the Westminster Confession that talked about the, the role that the civil government had in governing the church, that they continued to call it the Westminster Confession of Faith, even though a change had been made that would have, I, I'm convinced, really upset the people who originally wrote the Westminster Confession. So I think the way forward is to write a new one. Um, and I'm not under any uh, illusions that that would be easy or neat and tidy. Um, we would probably learn some very difficult and painful lessons in that process but at least we would have the advantage of being honest at that point. So I, I appreciate that. Our Scott Clark, I mean, he has an article. I mean, for those who uh, haven't read Recovering Their Form Confessions, he has an article on his uh, blog about reformed having an objective definition. And so would you, would you say it doesn't have an objective definition right now? I would say no in the sense that the goalposts keep getting moved. Okay, that actually makes a lot of sense. So, I mean, as I understand Clark in Recovering the Reformed Confession, he's wanting to say that it's the confessions as they were written in the 16th and 17th centuries that define what it means to be Reformed. And as we read those documents, we find things that we're not comfortable with. It's not just the civil magistrate issue. Um, The Belgic Confession in um, Article 24 talks about the order and the relationship between faith and regeneration in a way that none of us agree with. But I mean, that's part of what defines what it means to be reformed. And I I guess I'm working my way from the most important to the least important. So the the last one that would be the least important would be that um, article four of the Belgic confession also requires people who subscribe it to say that Paul wrote Hebrews. Um, most biblical scholars today don't believe that Paul wrote Hebrews. Um, And I'm, I'll be honest, I'm deeply suspicious of the way that Clark goes about uh, resolving that. But my, my resolution, my, my way forward, like I said, is to not plant the flag in the 16th and 17th centuries and say, the ink that was actually put on those papers then defines what it means to be reformed. Let's put our heads together as uh, reformed Christians now and, and write a new one. And that way we can say confidently, this is what it means to be reformed. I'm wondering 
Um, if you have thoughts on who would be writing that confession, just individual denominations? I, I think that in the interest of the body of Christ, broadly speaking, it should be um, as many different denominations coming together as possible. Initially, I thought, well, I should say NAPARC, but um, that's that's a pretty narrow view of the world. I mean, there are Reformed Christians in lots of other parts of the world, and I think that we ought to invite the churches of which they are a part to to participate in it as well. Um, I know we're kind of running at the end of our time. I think this has been interesting and helpful, and we'll give our listeners something to think about. Uh, there's definitely been some... There was some people pretty upset with me when when I decided what those things would be in our group. Mm. And but that was more uh like I I'm fine with the term reformed baptist. Uh it was more that that I did create goalposts and say, you know, it has to include confessional. You're not just reformed because you like Calvin and the five solas. <laughs> right. And, and like Calvinism. So, uh, but I do think right now there is a lot of confusion on Reformed identity. And I, I do really highly recommend this book to our listeners. I really think it's worth reading. I learned some things I did not know. Uh, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I mean, it's very interesting and it's got five different authors. So also interesting hearing the, the different perspectives. And Angela and I have talked, I mean, we're I, I'll just speak for myself. I'm. Uh, I agree with both uh, Clark and Hart, and I agree with you on things, and not really completely on one side or the other. I will just say that um, I, I think that a couple things. First, um, I think that I hear in your argument an underlying appeal to charity, and so I think that that is a, a really good thing um, for everybody involved in the discussion. And, and the second thing is that ultimately I think a big part of why this conversation is, um, happening right now is we do have a big influx of people rediscovering reformed theology and coming to reformed theology from maybe, um, less theologically sound traditions. And so ultimately maybe this is a, a hard conversation to have and an awkward conversation to have, but it's a really good place to be in that we need to have the conversation because it means, you know, we're bringing more people into good theology. So that's good. Agreed. Well, Chris, I think, thank you for joining us and our, just for our listeners and our episode notes, we're going to put links to Chris's podcast um, and anything else we talked about, obviously a link to the book and, I'm not sure if there's anything else that we mentioned. As I edit, I'll remember <laughs> anything else I should put put in there. Um, I'll, I'll also put links to the uh, Meredith Klein books that that Chris mentioned. If you didn't get a chance to write them down when he was talking, I I highly recommend checking out Meredith Klein, especially for those studying infant baptism. See if you can get a copy of By Oath Consigned. Um, and I think that's about it. So. Thank you, listeners, and we'll see you next week.